0: Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we are thankful to you for the power of your word that is able to save souls and to sanctify your saints. Those that need saving, we pray that you would quicken their hearts, regenerate them, grant them faith to believe they may become your children. Pray for all believers here this morning. Sanctify us by your word. We all need to be sanctified. We pray that you would do this, Lord. For your glory, magnify yourself in your name. Amen. (coughs) We turn this morning to the book of James. We have resumed our series in this book. Last week we looked at verse 13, where James not only commands the believers not to blame God for their sins, but for their temptation and sin, but also provides a theological defense for why God can never be blamed for sin, and I pointed out to you that there are at least A series of four theological defenses made here by James. Number one is in verse 13, the divine essence of God. God is untemptable, is the word that he uses there. Secondly, we will find that there is the innate nature of man. That's verse 14 and 15. Thirdly, we have the immutable character of God, verse 16 to 17, and then the divine work of God in verse 18. That is the scope of the section. That is the bird's eye view of what James is dealing with. This morning, we will deal with a second theological defense, and that is the innate nature of man. We see how temptation works. Innate to man, there is a passion, a desire, an inward prompting that causes him to be temptable. Two aspects of mankind as a whole is in view here. The cause and the result of temptation. That are the two main points I will cover. The others, but if you can remember those two. The cause and the result of temptation. Temptation. This forms part of James' theological defense against the accusation that when I am tried, God is tempting me. When I am in a trial, God is actually causing or wanting me to sin. And James says, no, that is wrong. That is sinful. To even think that way. Often, when we come to verse 14 and 15, we hear sermons on... Here are principles how to deal with temptation. This is not what the sermon is about. James is not telling you how to deal with temptation. He's telling you what's wrong with you when it comes to temptation. So let's give attention to the first main point here, the cause of temptation. I'm going to read from verse 12 through to 18, and then we'll jump in at verse 14. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, the test is the trial, he will receive the crown which is life. The genitive there indicates that the crown is equal to life. Therefore, it's the crown which is life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tried that were tempted there, Continues the thought of verse 12, under trial, the one tested. No one, let no one say, when tried or under trial, I am being tempted by God. James makes the switch from trial to temptation. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Literally, God is untemptable by evil. And he, tempts him, he himself tempts no one but Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be conceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The context is a response To the wrong doctrine, the wrong thinking, the wrong claim that God is somehow to be blamed for your temptation. As mentioned, James deals with a believer in a trial. Keep that in mind. This believer is commanded not to blame God ever. Why? Because the nature and the essence of God makes him untemptable. It's impossible for him to be drawn out, to do wrong, to do evil. James shows that God is immune to sin. And therefore cannot ever respond to the call or the the echo of sin. The second reality that James mentions here is found in verse 14 and 15. And this hits a little bit more closer to home. This theology starts to meddle with you and me. We don't like that. Give me a list of things to do and I'll do it. But don't get involved in how I think and what I choose to do. Then you're meddling. Well, James likes to meddle. And so he starts to mess around. Excuse the word. But starts to mess with our own innate nature. Look at verse 14. The text begins with but. That's a contrast. The contrast here is between the nature of God and the innate nature of man. But each person, he who is untemptable, he who does not respond to any kind of evil or temptation, in contrast to him, we have man but every person. So there's a contrast between the nature of man and the nature of God. But with these words following the contrast in verse 14, but each person, James now goes from the realm of the believer which is limited to the scope of all people. Every person, each one. This little word implies and stresses, I know it's two in English, but it's one word in in Greek. This little word implies and stresses the universal experience of every individual. This is personal. This is you and everyone else, not only in this church, but on this globe. Every single human being struggles with this problem. What you are going to see this morning is James's deep theology of anthropology, the study of mankind, what man is. They, James has a very solid, grounded, biblical understanding of what man is by his very nature. There is a qualifying phrase. Notice what it says, again, verse 14. But each person, in here's the qualifying phrase, when he is lured and enticed. And I'm going to take that phrase and move it to the end. And there's a reason for that. In the original, James moves or structures the sentence in a very specific way. And I'm going to read it to you as the original has it. But each person is tempted by his own desire when he is lured and enticed. Now it is true that word order is not important in in Greek, but it doesn't mean that it's not used by certain authors. He uses the structure to indicate both the means or the source of temptation and the effect of temptation. And so he moves the effect, how it is done, the the way that we are tempted to the back end. And he moves the front what the actual cause is. Why? Because he's contrasting the nature of God with the nature of man. God is untemptable, but notice now what it says. But each person is tempted by his own desire. So God, by nature, is untemptable, and each man, by nature, is what? Temptable. And then he explains how that temptation takes place, which is that qualifying clause that we have in the middle of the sentence. And I will put it at the end, um, because that's how James wrote it. He says, each person is tempted by his own desire. What does he mean here, by his own desire? This is the inner state, the inner condition of all mankind. Remember I said every person relates now to everybody. So he's toggled between the believer, the rich man, the unbelieving rich man, and now he says everyone. That inner state, that inner nature of man, which is described as passion. And when we see the word you desire, it's the word passion. Now, passion can be good. It can be a passion for God. It's the same word used for having a desire for God. And it can be used for evil, having a desire for sin. The word, in essence, can be used in a neutral sense. Like I said, it can be used of things generally. I desire to drink water. That, that, that's a passion. It's a normal desire. But in the context where the activity stands opposed to God's command, God's desire, God's will, it is always sinful. And that's the sense over here. Each person is tempted by his own. And some translations add the word sinful desire in there, and that is good. Because it gives a sense of what the desire is. It is by nature sinful There are other synonyms James could have used, other words to indicate the immorality that is prevalent in mankind. He could have used a word that relates to sexual perversion, but he chooses not to use that word, such as delight. We, um, in our translations, um, delight may seem innocent, but in the Greek, that word relates to a perversion that... um, that causes you to run after something because it brings most delight to you. He could could have used the word uh, will, but he doesn't. He chose a word broad enough to encompass the mind, the will, the thoughts, the desires, ignoring every other thing to show that this word deals with the entirety of the man, of the human. We see that Jesus speaks of mankind in similar language. Mark chapter 4, chapter 7, verse 21 through to 24 says this, From within, out of the heart of men, evil thoughts proceed, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, wickedness, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, arrogance and foolishness. Oh, let me just add in foolishness. It all comes from the same source. The same thing. The heart of man. All these evils come from within and these are what defile a man. Take note what Jesus says. It comes from within. If it comes out, it means that it was already what? It was already there. It is the unseen part of man that is prone and subject to transgression, temptation, and rebellion against God. It is that, uh, that sinful part of man that resonates on the same frequency as temptation. So when temptation comes, it cannot help but to respond to it. James says, you're like a bee that smells that a pollen a kilometer away and you are drawn to it you go after it now some use this verse to suggest that James is saying that man has an innocent beginning but every person is tempted by his own desire so there's innocence and then the temptation comes no not in the least the problem is that James places the blame, worthiness of our sin and temptation on the capacity to be tempted. Not on the temptation. Not on the object. Not on the thing. But on the capacity to be tempted. Does that make sense? This is not only seen in the words... His own desire, which is emphatic, which is emphasized in the text, but also in the way that he describes this temptation, being lured and enticed. James says that this desire causes people to be drawn out and seduced towards sin. Now, I'll get to that in a moment's time. It's a pretty powerful image. What James does not mean is that the beginning of the human condition is innocent. You cannot use this as a verse to say, well, our condition, uh, our starting point is innocent, so we get drawn out to sin. No, he says, your starting point is wrong. It's already compromised, and the end result is worse. The sense is that the nature of man, the desire of man, is Temptable. It is drawn out. In contrast to God, man is always temptable. He's seduced. It shows the weakness and inability of all mankind. That is depravity. One author says, and I quote, Deformed desire powerfully draws the sinner away to the forbidden object or activity. James's recognition of the power of desire to lead the self into sin is remarkable for its insight into the human soul in God. Yes, that's true. It shows us for what we truly are. We are defenseless when it comes to the uh, call of temptation. When it calls, there is no protection. We respond. James shows that man's innate fallenness, his innate fallen human condition causes all of mankind to be open and exposed to temptation. Think about that. This is in contrast to God. Remember the claim is, God is causing me to sin. And he says, no. See, God is untemptable. But you, whenever temptation comes, Guess what you do? You go after it. It is noteworthy to say, James does not say the devil is to be blamed for your temptation. Interesting exclusion. Now, he does mention the devil, the serpent, the Satan, uh, the Satan, Satan later on, the enemy. But listen, we are wicked enough. To do all kinds of evil without the help of the enemy. James is just showing that your starting point is not with the help of the devil. By yourself, you are wickedly rebelling against God. That is your normal state. Instead of a demonic influence that you would expect here, he says, no, your own evil desire, your own deformed, sinful, decrepit, depraved desire is what causes you to be tempted. Don't blame God. Don't even blame the devil because you don't need his help to be tempted. Now, it doesn't mean that he doesn't tempt. He does. There's too many scriptures to, that point that out to be a reality. You can't say like somebody who used to sing the gospel. Um, when I was growing up, we went to his show. You know him, Jimmy Swaggart, right? And he fell into sin and he said, the devil made me do it. No. No. The devil ain't to blame for that. That's your innate desire and passions controlling you, causing you to do it. James says that the resonant problem in mankind is the innate human nature. This is what you are. This is who you are. His own passions, his own desire. In other words, the seed, seed of emotions and desire and will is already compromised He cannot help but be tempted. Again, think of the context. James is saying, this is the claim, God causes me to do sin. God causes me to be tempted. God is tempting me, and he says, no. The reason you are tempted is because you have a passion that is compromised. You have a desire that is compromised. You have a will that is compromised, and it will always be led to sin. Mankind has a compromised nature. therefore it is incorrect to blame God for your temptation. James shows that there is inherent problem with us and it causes us to be tempted. Now how are people tempted? Well that's the last part of verse 14 which in our text is in the middle. When he is lured and enticed. Powerful Imagery in those words. These are verbal adjectives for you grammarians. And it relates to when and how it modifies the words, his passions. This is how people are tempted. It shows how easily we are drawn out. The first word here, when he is lured. What does that mean? means to drag away. It uh, can be used in the context as in Acts twenty twenty verse 30, uh, to change someone's belief system, to, to drag him away from something truthful, to lead into falsity or lies. Uh, Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders and says, Be on alert because some will draw out, pull away, drag away some by means of persuading others to follow different doctrines. So it can be used in that way. The word can also mean to drag out, or, or like out of a pit. When Joseph was thrown in the pit, the Midianites came by and they dragged him out. In the Alex that is the same word. They pulled him up. The most significant form of this word or usage of the word is in the hunting or fishing context. It's when there's a lure, uh, a, a bait that has been thrown into the water and that unsuspecting fish is... Oh. There's something on top of the water, and he goes for it. Grabs onto it. It is not the catching that's in view; it's the luring out. It is drawing him away from the rest of the fish. It is drawing him out of that dark place of protection. It is drawing him out to be exposed and then caught. We went uh, fishing with uh, a friend of mine once on his farm and. Sadly to say, my wife beat me. It's, it's catch and release, so it's the amount of fish that you catch, not how big the fish is. Otherwise, I would have won if my fish was that big. <laughs> I'm lying. It was that size. Every now and again, it struck me how quickly you had a bite. The minute you threw it in, there was a nip at it. But every now and again, you would have a fish... Testing the bait. It would come out, test it, nip at it. It didn't taste like anything. It looked like other fish, which was concerning, because (laughs) fish eating fish, I suppose, you know, it's a cycle of life kind of thing. But every now and again, they would nip at it. And it doesn't taste like anything, but they would come back. And eventually, they would get caught by the hook. James is likewise. A man is allured He's he's lured out out of the safety uh, of his uh, home to do wrong, out of the safety of the church to do wrong, out of the safety of of his place, of his abode to do evil. Temptation that resonates with the person because of the presence of sin in the nature and the desire of man. There's internal receptors that pick up the scent of sin. Remember the analogy of the bee last week? He, he has an internal scent receptor. And whenever there's pollen, it will pick it up and it can go for it. That is us. Whenever there's temptation, your sin scent uh, receptors kick into high gear. Oh, it's there. I got, I got to go for it. James says, that is what you are like. Unlike God, who cannot ever be tempted, you, on the other hand, you are always lured. It just always drags you away. James shows how mankind is caught in a vicious cycle that always and always he will always concede to sin. That's scary. It shows the fallenness of mankind in these um, innocent imagery that James uses. He's not just talking about temptation. He's showing the decrepit nature of man. We can't defend ourselves against the law of sin. That is what he's saying. There is no protection for you. There is no defense. When temptation comes, what are you going to do? You're going to go after it. You will always go after it. Because you're like a dumb blind fish. Who, who smells that lure and goes after it? James is describing the thorough, the thoroughly internalized process of sin. The source of all temptation is the self and its desire for the sake of its desire. In verse 14, we see that James says that we entice ourselves. You to blame. You you can't help it. Your own nature causes you to be temptable. So, verse 14 is the contrast, the contrasting answer to verse 13's blame. Let no one say that I am being tempted by God. And he says, no. Here's the reason number one. God is untemptable. Here's the reason number two. Every person is temptable. And this is how you're tempted. You put something in front of you, you get thrown out. You get lured. Now there's an interesting grammatical form here for both words lured and enticed. They're both passive. I would have expected it to be active. But they're both passive, which means that these are activities that that cause you to be drawn out. There is something outside of you that draws out the what? The sinfulness of your nature. They give the idea that there is a coaxing out. It reveals humanity's. Unstrained, unrestrained condition. There is no protection but the grace of God when it comes to temptation. Let me illustrate it this way. If you have a, um, a pet and it's new to you, what do you do to get it um, used to you, your smell? You put some food on your hand and you coax it out of its hidey hole, Right? And it comes out, and it sniffs. But here's the thing. The closer it gets, the stronger the scent of the thing is on your hand. And it forgets that there's a hand. It goes beyond the danger to the very thing that will maybe cause its death. But it doesn't matter. The food is there. It must be taken. If you've got a hamster, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It gets drawn out. The dumb animal just comes to you. Now it will put his little paws on you and and try to grab at the animal with its mouth. at At the food with its mouth. It's already too late to turn back. That's what's happening here. We can't help ourselves. That is implicit in this word, Lord. The scent of sin is too strong. There is a strange magnetism between the object of temptation and the cause, which is your heart. James says that it's like a magnet. The minute it's there, you get drawn to it. This is further explained in the word enticed or seduced in the ESV. But each person, when he is lured, dragged out, now put out in the open to be exposed and enticed. What does entice mean? There's there's a little bit of overlap between these two words. The former lure means to get you out in the open, to expose you. But this last word appeals to the thing that you most want. You could say that there's a preoccupation with that thing. You become consumed and controlled by it. It's the perfect scent, the perfect bait that has now caused you to not only come out but go after it. It has now become irresistible. That's the point. You are exposed. Your defenses are down. All rational processes flee and the preoccupation is set upon that object. You must get it. What was at first, a, first a, 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 a mere glance is now an unchangeable gaze at the thing that has captured your attention, and you are drawn to it. You are on a trajectory that is unchangeable. This magnetism of sin has a mesmerizing effect upon the person, it blinds you from dangers. From any problems, any effects, and any consequences, because you now must have it. You know what I'm talking about, right? No. Okay, I'll explain it in a moment's time. We see these words, deception and allurement, it shows us for what we really are. Our hearts are not only lured but blinded and deceived by the thing that lures us. Our sinful nature, our sinful fallen human condition makes us exposed to sin and makes temptations irresistible. James says this is a normative reality. This is what happens to all mankind, men and women. We are all subject to the passions, the enticement and enticement of sin. Now, not everybody sin, uh, uh, is tempted in the same way. You can't tempt me with sushi. Doesn't matter how much you try, call. There is no temptation when it comes to sushi. Why? Because what is it? Su- see, you can't even say it right. It's sushi. <laughs> Sushi is fish bait. It's what they use to catch other fish. There's no temptation for me. I'm not a fish. There's nothing there. Now you put a box of samosas on on the table. Now that's a different thing. A sister caused me to sin yesterday. She brought a whole box of samosas. i was like, what must I do with this? Well, it's finished now. Okay, I, I lie. It's not all done. Even though there's different capacities to be drawn out, small things will tempt some people. And sometimes it takes bigger things to tempt other people. But the point is, James says, all of you, all of us, are always tempted. You will always be drawn and enticed and seduced. You will always end up being blind and lured by the thing that has captured your attention. That's the problem. Temptation to sin is the problem of humanity. This is our condition. This is our starting point. The personal struggle with evil desire is not usually one that comes because you are confronting the devil. It comes because you have a heart that is depraved. This means you are helpless. When it comes to temptation, this means you will always end up in sin when temptation is put before you. James paints a really bleak picture of humanity and he does so for a reason. Why? Because firstly he's raised up the untemptible nature of God and now he's gone down to the depths of humanity. He says, you know why you are tempted? It's not because of God. It's because of what you are. You are a sinner by nature and you will always be tempted. That is the problem. That's huge. James has just given us a theology of sin. And it gets worse. He moves to the extent of this helplessness. So keep all that in mind. I haven't explained that in full capacity yet. I will explain that at the end of the next section. What is the result of temptation? Wow. Verse 15. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. James reveals that mankind is in a hopeless, enslaved condition. There's only one outcome. There's only one outcome. Death. That's the only end to your state, is what he's saying. In verse 15, we will see the product and the natural outcome of our nature. This goes beyond being tempted. He now tells you the exact way in which sin causes death. He says, when a person's desire meets temptation, then there is a normative outcome. You can count on it. This is true to life every time. You will always end up here. He's not talking about merely daily sins. He's talking about a life of rebellion against God. You'll see that. In the text, so let's consider James's analogy in verse fifteen. What do you think the analogy is here? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. What is that? That's pregnancy. James uses a female analogy; he's not a female, but he can speak of something that is uncommon to himself. I mean, he doesn't know the whole processes, but he does know something. There is conception first, but look in the beginning of the verse. Then desire. That word then looks back. It it provides a bridge. But the word desire in the Greek has an article. Article is the word the. So it's when the desire, and grammatically it's called anaphoric. You don't need to remember that term. Basically, just means I'm pointing back. To the desire I just mentioned. The desire that makes you temptable. You can write in there that desire or this desire. James says then, this desire that I've just mentioned. When it has conceived desire, when it conceives, it gives birth to sin. Desire is a mummy. And when temptation meets your sinful desire, conception takes place. It is interesting that James sees the beginning of life as what? Conception. Yes, the Bible does teach that a baby is a baby at conception. Because this baby becomes a human. I don't know, baby is a human. Becomes a child. (laughs) That's what I mean. Becomes a child later on. A full-grown human being. But notice the way that he describes this. Then desire, when it meets temptation, there's a conception that takes place and it gives birth to sin. While sin is singular here, it does not mention the specific nature of the sin. What James is talking about is the unsanctioned rebellion against God. By nature, just what it is, it's a rebellion against God. And he says, this is what you are. You are not only temptable, but your temptation means you always end up in sin. It gets worse. So it doesn't matter what the sin is. When it doesn't accord with God's law, God's desire, God's command, it's a willful rebellion against God. James says this is all of mankind. Notice the next cycle in the process of temptation. Now, desire has become pregnant, it's conceived says, and sin, sin here is also anaphoric, which means the sin that has now been born becomes pregnant. When it is fully grown, brings forth death. The gestation period of sin is a growing, growing period. It doesn't mean that sin lies dormant ever. Like a baby that grows in the womb, so sin grows to such a degree that it is able to produce its own progeny. I want you to think about what James is saying here. It grows to such a degree (coughs) that it becomes uncontainable and untamable. Sin, when it becomes an adult, produces its own result. Sin is not only the result of our hearts, but becomes the dominant power in our hearts, producing its own child. Yeah? Death. Interesting. James pictures a pregnant woman. There are three subjects in, four subjects in this verse. And the analogy of the pregnancy says, if, if, You are what you are, a human being. You are always going to have the conception of sin in your heart. You are always going to have the net result of that, which means the birthing of sin. And sin becomes a beast of its own, a monster of its own, and it produces its own result. What is that result? Death. Understand the weight of what James is saying here. Sin slays the thing that it is in. Think about that. It is sin that is born of a a, a copulation between desire and temptation. Sin is the net result, but sin becomes so dominant that it kills the thing that it is in. Sin kills its host. Sin is like a parasite that permeates the entire person, entirely, completely overrunning it to such a degree, degree that that person befalls to its control. And death is the end. What a horrendous picture. James says, your starting point is bad because your passions are wicked. Your ending point is worse because it ends that sin. Your child kills you. That's the picture that he gives as a defense against why you cannot blame God. Why? Because you are wicked. You will always be tempted. Temptation is not God's fault. It's your own fault. Interesting here is the effect of this. He starts with passions or desire resulting in sin. Sin then resulting in its own child which is death. There is nothing in the equation that can abort the process. He says you can't end it. Once your passion is present and it is present, guess what? Where will you end up? In death. That's a theology of sin. In an analogy of pregnancy. This is mastery at the highest level. And some guys say there's no theology in James. (laughs) Think about it this way. You mouse murderers may know this well. You bait a mouse. With some cheese. And some of you are wicked. You put peanut butter on there. You put it at the end of the trap. And the mouse is lured by the smell, the scent of food. And and the problem is, it's so dumb. It doesn't even see that it's out in the open. That's already a problem. You're so small, people can step on you. But no, it doesn't matter because the scent is so sweet. And and then he goes towards it. He thinks it's free food. My mom used to say, there is no free lunch. Amen. There is nothing free in life. His mouth needed to listen to my mom. Then, as he is drawn out, lured out, and enticed by that scent of that piece of food on the trap. In one one one-hundredth of a second, ten milliseconds, bam, he's dead. Unless he grew up in Mitchell's Plain and he steals a piece of cheese off. (laughs) (laughs) James says, that is you, your internal condition as a human makes you, I know this is not a word, temptable, seducible, lureable, and deceivable. That mouse is the analogy of what happens to us all the time when it comes to sin. James says, it leads to your death. This is why God is untemptable because in his infinite holiness, he can never end up in sin or in death. There's no stopping the inevitable is the sense of this analogy. Once conception begins, Shantan, what happens? The child is born, right? <laughs> it's a natural progression. He uses a very simple illustration, but it's complex. This is a hopeless condition. But there is hope. Look at verse 18. Of his own will. Wait, wait. There's a connection here. James goes from his own will in verse 14. Each person is tempted by his own desire. Own will, his own desire. Verse 18. Of his own will. See the contrast? Your will always results in what? Sin and death. Your will always will cause you to sin and you will always end up in death. That's your end. But, verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth. you know what that is? That's an analogy of spiritual life. That's birthing. So God, by his will, gives birth to new beings. By the word of truth, that we should be the kind of first fruits of these creatures. There's a new kind of humanity that comes from God. Wow. He brought us forth. What is James giving us in verse 18? That is the gospel. You have the problem of sin and you have the solution. Your will ends up in death. God's will ends up in life. See it this way. Your will, by your own passions and desire, can never choose God, but it is God who brings life to you. That is the gospel. Human depravity is brought down by God's astounding grace. James says, this is why you need God in verse 18. This is why you get life, because God, by His will, chose to give you life. He's saying that you could never end up choosing God and ever coming to saving life. But God, by His will, chooses you. This helps us understand what death is in verse 15. What is the end result? When it is fully grown, brings forth to death. If it's spiritual life, in verse 18, what is it imply in verse uh, 15? spiritual death. James gives a theology of humanity saying that you are not only, do not only have a a depraved desire, but your nature ends up in sin, causes you to sin all the time, and your nature will cause you to always end up in eternal damnation apart from God. But for verse 18, If God does not do anything about the equation, you end up in death. It is grace that snatches you from the pathway and the logical conclusion of sin to death. Without God, there is no changing the sequence of events. There is no protection against the temptation and the strength and the power overwhelming deception of temptation and sin. There is nothing You will always be given to it. James says, listen, there is hope in God when he calls you to become his child. Why is this important? Because James moves on in verse 19 onwards to the expected new life of God's children. If God gives birth to a new humanity, then there is a new life in him. Know this, my beloved brothers, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, therefore putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word. Not here is only deceiving yourself. James gives us a theology of salvation from God's point of view. Man is sinful and will always go lost until he comes into contact with God. I'm going to end on that. God is immutably holy by His grace, grants some the capacity to be saved and to live a life that honors Him. James says, this is why you can never blame God. Because God doesn't cause you to be tempted. You are tempted by your own sin. Let's pray. Father, thank You because of Your grace your mercy upon our lives and for the insights of James into the natural state of all humanity. We are all lost, we're all depraved, we all have passions that is turned not only against ourselves but against you, we pray Lord. That those who are still in that state of lostness that will end up in a lost eternity, save them. Change their lives, may they become yours. And those who are yours, who think lightly of temptation and sin, pray that you would sanctify them by your word and change them to live obediently to the word of truth. Thank you again for this word. For your glory we pray. Amen.